Welcome back to the show that tells you you are a quantum computer with free will. But hey, I'm just one guy, so I want to hear what you have to say. Please leave a comment below, like the video, subscribe to the channel, and let's get this discussion started. Join me deep inside the mystery of numbers. Come and huff a metaphysical loop. See how concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of Quantum Consciousness. Hi there, my name is Justin Riddle. Welcome back. Today is episode seven of Quantum Consciousness, and we will be starting our discussion of metaphysics. This will be the next three episodes of metaphysics, discussing single world, typically physicalist models, and then dualist models, often involving a mind and a body. And then this uh, spooky domain of three world models, um, involving some sort of mathematical, conceptual level in addition to the mind and the body. So to start off our first video in the metaphysics series, let's introduce what metaphysics is. So metaphysics is meta, meaning self-referential, physics. So essentially it is the physics of physics or discussing essentially reality as it as it really is at its core. So why this is really meaningful is that we have this experience of being a conscious being and often we take this conscious experience for granted. We live our lives, we're engaged in the world around us and we seldom stop and think, you know, how am I alive? What is going on here? What is the basis of my mind and my thoughts and my feelings? Where did all this come from? So I think the, the real fundamental question of metaphysics, or like the core one, is why is there something rather than nothing? It seems so much easier to live in a vacuum in a universe where nothing exists. So why bother going about the creation of anything at all? Why is there matter? Why is there energy? It's so much simpler just to live with nothing. So the fundamental question of metaphysics is why even have physics at all? Why even bother to have a metaphysics? And yes, these are philosophical questions, but it's still valuable to, to really question our fundamentals of, of really even why we're here. Um, second, an important part of metaphysics is to wonder what is reality and what is just an illusion. So if something is truly real, then we should be able to measure it, describe it, fully interact with it. But oftentimes our mind is tricked and we don't see things clearly and we can get confused or we can mistake something that we think to be real uh, as being real. And it's not actually real. It's just an illusion. And so our mind very often or occasionally can play tricks on us, such as an optical illusion. And we might even know that something is, is an illusion, but we can't unsee it. So part of metaphysics is really questioning where we're coming from when we're even looking at a problem and asking ourselves the, the question, why do I think this? Is there another way to view this? Why do I have the beliefs and the conceptions and viewpoints that I have? And really being a little self-critical and analyzing uh, the fundamentals there. 
All right, next up I think is really important is do you exist? And really in physicalism, this, this is very much challenged. So a lot of today's video will be talking about physicalism and how there's plenty of people that deny the very existence of a conscious being or even having a mind. So another important part of metaphysics is, are you actually real? And there's this naive sense that we are real and that we have these experiences, but how much of that is illusion or real reality? And so a big part of this question is, is essentially figuring out if you are real, how could that be the case? And then how bizarre to be experiencing and questioning our reality from the vantage point of existing, you know? And so what does that, that nature of our own existence, how does that then bias or change how we view the world around us? And how does that shape our beliefs and thoughts and feelings? All right, finally, um, I can imagine impossible things, but you know, those impossible things aren't real. So I love the Penrose impossible triangle. And that is an impossible shape, but we can all imagine it. It's kind of a popular icon um, in, a lot of, in a lot of locations. But the question is, do these ideas exist? Do concepts really exist? Is math real? Or is it just made up by humans? Um, did we just come up with the whole number system, one, two, three, four, five, and it's all just made up in our heads and it's just this big illusion or are numbers actually real and existing in some sort of metaphysical way and so i think uh a lot of my thoughts about quantum consciousness uh are really just questioning metaphysics questioning myself questioning uh, the views that i have as i look around the world and this idea that ideas themselves have a metaphysical existence in reality really blew my mind when I first heard about it, and I really can't shake it. Um, and Plato was a big proponent of this idea that concepts and mathematics existed in some metaphysical sense. Um, so we'll be going into that uh, during this series. All right, so I want to start off with a philosopher named Owen Flanagan. And I had the pleasure of taking a class with Owen Flanagan, and I really learned a lot from him. Uh, his class really blew my mind. And he presents this framing or setting up this historical narrative of why is it so awkward and weird to talk about consciousness at all? There is a huge push to just not talk about it. Um, it's almost on the order of politics and religion to some degree where it's a touchy, weird subject. It often gets people really riled up in, in ways that sometimes are unexpected and, and you're not really, you know, you go into a conversation in a good-natured approach and people get really uh, flamed up off of discussions of consciousness. So part of, you know, teaching quantum consciousness or coming out and talking about you in this video, yeah, it's a very strange experience. It almost feels like you're revealing some inner sanctum of your own thinking, which should be, you know, kept in the shadows. But people have really been wondering, what is it about consciousness that makes it a touchy subject and makes it weird to talk about? And so Owen Flanagan really lays this out with these nice four bullet points, which I'll go through. And I think, you know, they, uh, they map onto the three world model quite nicely. So I'll frame them within that perspective. The first one is the piecemeal approach. And this is that drive to understand things as pieces. So if I wanna know how a car works 
and I don't know how a car works. But if I want to know how a car works, I just need to understand all the pieces of the car and then I know what the car is. All the pieces functioning, interacting with each other makes the car happen. And by knowing all the pieces, I understand the car. So there's this explanation that, that involves the piecemeal approach and people find explanations where you dive into the parts of something as very satisfactory. And so this is a little meta, but what explanations do you find are the most compelling? And there's certain explanations that resonate with us and they really satisfy us and other explanations that don't. And the explanations that are the most satisfactory potentially are ones that break something down into little pieces and parts. And then when you know all the parts and how they interact, now you understand the whole thing. And the whole is really just reduced into the parts. And this is really the core concept behind reductionism where the idea is, oh, if I could just get to a more fundamental level, I'll understand something better. So the human mind, well, it's just the brain. Well, the brains are just neurons. Well, the neurons are just synapses. Well, the synapses are just made of proteins and the proteins are just made of these specific chemicals. And those chemicals are really atomic forces and the atomic forces are the laws of physics. And so we just wanna go down, 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 down and get to this really basic level of all the little pieces and parts bumping into each other. And so I think a lot of people drawn to physics, for example, or chemistry um, are really drawn to this piecemeal approach and they wanna get to the core of what reality is. And so we gotta dive down into the smallest parts and then, and then eventually we can build things back up to the level of the human mind, which is inevitably the level that we care about a lot because it's our own experience, right? We are in this experience. And so at the end of the day, the true mystery is coming out as a baby in this world and wondering you know, what's going on and then trying to figure out what this whole life thing is about. And so the drive towards the piecemeal approach might make you choose a physics major or a chemistry major um, or a math major where you just really wanna to get to these, these core pieces. But why are those explanations satisfactory to us? And is there some bias there where if something wasn't reducible to its parts, would that feel unsatisfactory to you even if that was the proper explanation. All right, next up, epiphenomenalist suspicion. So this is a big word, epiphenomenalism, but this is basically the idea that your mind or consciousness emerges from the brain, but then it's inert, it doesn't do anything. It's just there for the ride, it's just along, it's a big show. And we'll go into this when we talk about Daniel Dennett, but the idea is that we're suspicious that maybe our minds aren't really doing anything and we don't have free will. And essentially your life is more like a movie than a video game. There's no one at the controls. You are watching a film. And this is sort of attractive as a, as a scientific framework because there's no complexity of trying to build in this conscious mind and having to interact with the body in some strange way. You can just say, well, yeah, sure, maybe there's a theatrical element to our experience, and that's consciousness. But in reality, it's just a bunch of physical stuff doing things, and there's no such thing as free will. And so we're suspicious that we might not have free will, and you'll see there's a lot of people um, invested in this way of thinking where your actions are really not your own. They're just occurring and you are sort of along for the ride of your own brain 
And I think it takes away a lot of agency. Um, and we have this naive experience of having free will. So I think we still need an explanation for that. But there's a suspicion that we might not need our free will and that we might just be along for the ride. All right, positivistic reserve. Positivistic reserve. This uh, essentially refers to the idea that you gain knowledge through direct experience. And so because we're a conscious being, we have this raw, vital experience of being a human, but we're reserved about that experience. And here's my, uh, I guess, favorite analogy for what this looks like. You hop up in front of a stage of a thousand brilliant scientists with all their credentials, and then you have to tell them about how, you know, last night you were walking on the street and you were thinking to yourself and having this experience, and you think that experience was real. And so it's it's somewhat strange, but it's a reference to mind and it's a reference to experience. And even though we all have this experience, it's still weird to refer to our own minds and our own experiences as evidence in and of themselves, right? So the idea is that you are having an experience and we're drawing our evidence from our own experience, but we're reserved in talking directly about that experience itself. Um, and so in public-facing settings, it's sometimes awkward to refer to your own experience as evidence. And yeah, we need reproducibility, but I think there's intuitive ways of, um, or there's sciences of the subjective, which could maybe create reproducible phenomena that could be experienced. But because experience is so fundamentally subjective, it's challenging to talk about publicly. And it's easy to criticize someone by just saying, oh, well, that's just your experience. Like it could just be made up in your own mind or something. So in essence, it's challenging to talk about our own experience because it's private, it's subjective, it's personal. Finally, there's this idea of consciousness in essentialism that Owen Flanagan puts out. And this is the idea that the universe would go on just fine without you. You don't really need consciousness. It's, it's inessential. It's inessential to have human minds or any minds in the universe. It would function perfectly without anything such as consciousness. So why are we so insistent on adding consciousness into this framework when you can just have a physical reality and laws and things bumping into each other and the sun's growing and exploding and producing fusion and whatever's going on there. And you don't need conscious beings whatsoever. So they're inessential to reality. And therefore, the study of consciousness is not essential to science, right? And wow, I mean, that might be a powerful um, argument to many of you out there. However, consciousness is a fundamental experience to everyone who has ever done science. And so how much are we denying our own experience? And are we trapped in these piecemeal approaches? Are we ensnared by these certain explanations that resonate with us because we don't have to talk about thoughts or feelings or any of that wishy-washy woo-woo type stuff and we can stick with stone-cold evidence and measurements 
and ignore the aspects of those measurements that are self-referential or referring to the scientists themselves. Um, and so I would encourage you to think about what if any of these different points that Owen Flanagan is making, what if any of those were wrong? What if the mind was not epiphenomenal and had an influence? What if there was a limitation to the piecemeal approach and pure reductionism is not actually the best way of going about describing the metaphysics of our reality? What if we have to talk about our experience in order to accurately convey information because we are trapped within a mind? It's inescapable that we are speaking from a human experience. And finally, what if consciousness, proto-consciousness, some raw form of a conscious-like thing is essential to the universe? And what would that look like? And I'm not saying, you know, you have to pick any of these or, or you know, buy into all this at face value, but really just question these basic assumptions that you're making when you come into a discussion of consciousness. And if you're having an open dialogue with someone, let's have a good faith discussion and talk about, you know, what is consciousness? Why are we here? And really listen and learn from each other. And I just really want to point out that it is very fascinating to me how triggering consciousness is to many, many people. And I think if, uh, if I'm able to strike a nerve, you know, where is that coming from? Part of naming this series and these episodes quantum consciousness, in a way it is kind of meant even as like a trigger word to get people engaged and to make you sort of get inflamed like, oh my God, quantum consciousness. That sounds preposterous. I need to like have a conversation with this person and figure out what they're talking about, right? So really, I'm here for an open dialogue, and I hope you are too. And let's talk about you know what theories are out there, what evidence is out there, um, and what what is this metaphysics all about? All right. So I'm going to start off this discussion of physical world metaphysics by talking about behaviorism. And behaviorism really grew into prominence in the mid-20th century. And this was the idea that everything could be reduced down to an exchange of inputs and outputs, stimulus response mappings, and that in order to study the human mind, we need to study it through behavior. And part of this is very rationally motivated, where the only way we can measure another human being is through measurement, and so through behavior. We have to reduce the complexity of the human experience down to behaviors, because at the core of you know the practical reality of collecting data on a human is that you have to have them do some behavior. So behaviorism took this to the extreme, and in a way it was sort of a backlash to the Freudian, Jungian, psychoanalytic age where psychology wanted to be more and more of a hard science sort of within the, uh, the STEM majors as they're typically referred to now. Psychology wanted to become a rigorous evidence-based practice and all of that is obviously a very good thing for the field to move towards evidence-based measurement and um, I still think there's room to appreciate, you know, the psychoanalytic approaches as well, but more on that in the future. So behaviorism was sort of a hard swing in the direction of we need to make 
observable, measurable models where we can take a human and figure out how their stimulus presented to them maps into their response behaviorally. And so humans are a complex network of stimulus response mappings. And the classic example is um, Pavlovian's dogs, where you have these dogs and they salivate whenever they're about to get fed. And then every time you feed them, you ring a bell right before you feed them, and then you give them the food. And then over time, they learn to associate the bell with them about to get some food. And so now, just ringing the bell, this was a unconditioned stimulus previously. Now we've conditioned that stimulus to be associated with the reward. And now you just ring the bell and the dog starts salivating because essentially they know they're going to get some food and they've made this association to this stimulus leads to this response. And the behavioral response is the salivation and the stimulus can be paired with another stimulus and you can build these complex networks of arbitrarily paired stimuli. And the argument here is that your brain works in this way where you have a bunch of stimuli and a bunch of responses and we want to arbitrarily start pairing stimulus to response and we can essentially build any behavioral response uh, and any complexity of incoming stimuli. And then you have just this uh, similarity pattern matching mechanism where new connections are formed and then you can build these complex networks. And this went to the, to the extreme end where it was then pushed that language could be verbal behavior and that the complexity of human language could be reduced to stimulus response pairings. And Noam Chomsky famously has a rebuttal of this verbal behaviorism as it was being approached. And so the, the beauty of this is that it's essentially very, very, very simple, right? Stimulus, response, some of these are paired by nature, and then you can add new ones just by conditioning them. So you just have simultaneously presented things, and over the repeated presentation in, in, uh, in synchrony, like they're simultaneously presented, a natural connection is formed between those two, an association, and then you build an association network of all these stimuli and all these responses and mapping between them. And this is essentially uh, nicely fitting in with these neural models of, you know, I have a neuron that gets some inputs and it fires. So we have input to output, and then we're associating this complexity of inputs into some arbitrary output. And then we can rig up, let's say, a bunch of neurons into a big neural network, and they learn through this reward signal what stimuli are coming in and what rewards am I getting for responding in a certain way. And then those rewards are essentially training the network and providing feedback in order to build associations here, destroy associations there, you know, or strengthen or weaken different patterns of activity. And there's nothing special going on there. It's just a bunch of complexity, a bunch of exposure to different scenarios, and then having some sort of rewarding feedback system. And then you can get any stimulus pair to any response pair. So what's the benefit of this? Uh, it's a remarkably simple and powerful model for essentially modeling 
input to output. And so you can, you can use this in these neural networks and build pretty powerful predictive models. And you do away with any concept of mental states, right? There's no need for a single entity, a single conscious cognitive system or being. You really can just have a bunch of random you know, neurons or random nodes getting a bunch of input, mapping them onto output. And there's no need for a central hub or like a central person in the middle because it's essentially a fundamentally distributed system. Fundamentally distributed, it's just broken up into all these arbitrary nodes. So Daniel Dennett is a philosopher who is not quite a behavioralist, um, but speaks on these same ideas in a, in a really compelling way. And so he is what is considered a eliminative materialist, meaning you can eliminate all consciousness, all qualitative subjective experience, and mental states are essentially an illusion. The mind is just the brain. You can reduce the mind to the brain directly, one-to-one -one mapping of everything you think is your mind into brain activity. And he calls this quining qualia. You're essentially getting rid of this notion of qualia of subjective experience in any, in any way, shape, or form. And some of the arguments for this that he makes um, that I find really compelling are the Cartesian theater. And this is the idea that there is a theatrical show going on in your brain and that your brain is essentially creating this narrative for you. And why would the brain do that? And he's actually against this idea of our Cartesian theater. And he criticizes people that are in support of these different models of consciousness that aren't purely physicalist um, in suggesting that you have this single hub or this single entity experiencing this thing because it would be the equivalent of a movie or a theatrical piece where you're essentially assembling this show and why would the brain go about creating this show for you there is no you there's no point of this show being done why waste the energy on creating the show at all Another criticism of these consciousness theories is the homunculus problem. And this is the idea that if you believe that there is a little person in your head pulling all the strings and making, making your body move around, then who is in that little person's head pulling their strings and making their body move around within your body? And then within that smaller microscopic little person's head, you would need an even smaller person pulling their strings and making their body move around. So there is an infinite regression of smaller and smaller beings inside of beings inside of beings. And why, you know, why would we need all that? Um, and it seems to be preposterous. So he rejects this as preposterous because you would have an infinite regression of smaller and smaller beings inside of each other. So that is one argument um, against that. And then he makes the argument that consciousness is really just like this virus of, of self-replication. And you hear ideas like this also from Richard Dawkins, for example, where the, the mind and the brain is really trying just to replicate and reproduce. And so there's this evolutionary drive to replicate yourself. 
and that really any idea that we are a self is part of some evolutionary push or instinct that is artificially created as a way to motivate the organism to to do something or another um and and we're essentially there is no consciousness it's just this illusion of consciousness that happens to come about through through this physical system all right next up is functionalism and functionalism is very similar to physicalism or eliminative materialism essentially because functionalism is the idea that you still have an input to output mapping, but this theory borrows from the software-hardware distinction in digital computation to essentially suggest that consciousness is a particular software running on the hardware of your brain. So you could have an alien with different chemistry or a different set of, of biological constructs enacting some form of consciousness because it's just a program that is being run. Similarly, you could have an artificial intelligence made out of silicone, and it could be totally artificially constructed in a very mechanical way, and yet it's running a consciousness program, and so the software is the consciousness, and it's really not determined by the medium, but it's more determined by the function, hence functionalism. So the idea here is that we really want to figure out what is that algorithm of the mind? What is the software of the mind? What are the series of computations that the mind is doing? And that series of computations is the mind. And so one fallout of functionalism is that if you were to take the brain and fully understand a single neuron and how it works within the ecosystem of the brain, then I go in with some micro tweezers, pluck out that neuron, replace it with a little robotic chip, and that robotic chip carries out all of the functions of the neuron. Inputs come in, outputs go out. I fully biochemically create the exact neuron but as an artificial construct, replicating the input to output function. And now I do that to a second neuron and then a third neuron. And I do it to thousands and hundreds of hundreds of thousands of neurons. And eventually you become a cyborg. You have a cyborg brain, but the brain is processing all the same input to output pairings. And so would that still be you? Would you still be in that cyborg brain if I slowly replaced every neuron one at a time such that the function was replicated perfectly or close enough? And functionalism would argue that, yeah, that is you. You are now a cyborg, but your experience is preserved. Nothing has changed. There is no glitch in the matrix as it were. You have a continuous experience just like it was before. Nothing is lost. And so functionalism is held near and dear to many people's hearts who really believe in this digital computer framing of the mind. And really, this is the idea of strong artificial intelligence, that you could fully recreate the human mind in silico in a digital computer, and that would be a conscious being 
And functionalism would say, yep, you can do that. We just need to figure out the right algorithm. But once we figure it out, then we'll be able to recreate a conscious being inside of a digital computer and it will be indistinguishable from you, from me, and this is possible. All right, so I now went through all of those with a lot of enthusiasm because I think they are very strong arguments and very compelling. And if you really appreciated those arguments and that resonated with you, so be it, and I love that. But now let's talk about the criticisms. Where does this fall apart? And we'll go into this more in our epistemology discussion in a future episode where we talk about Gödel's incompleteness theorem, the halting problem, and uh, Russell's paradox, a lot of these uh, problems with first-order logical systems. But before we even get there, I think there's also arguments to be made against it in a much more practical sense. And essentially, the idea here is really a reference to complexity once again. All of these behaviorist, physicalist, functionalist models, a lot of them really heavily rely on complexity because no single element is very interesting on its own. It's just saying, hey, I have a high electrical voltage going in, converted to a low electrical voltage going out. It's very much at that level that simple. And we talked about this in the digital computer episode where you can recreate these digital computations with a bunch of beer cans hanging off strings in a tree and you're pulling on a series of beer cans. So at, the, at a basic level, it is a reference to complexity. And I do not think we have recreated a strong artificial intelligence. And so why is that? Maybe we got the math wrong. Maybe we haven't figured out the right code to run. But what really would that code actually look like and at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of very simple computations being processed, not engaging with quantum computers or any of these other new forms of technology. And let's not get lost in complexity where we just say, add complexity, magic happens. And there's this joke that in every person's theory of consciousness, there's like a magical step where it's like, all right, just give me this one magic moment and then and then everything else I said is really rigorous. And so a lot of these models where you have consciousness coming out of physicalism is that, okay, yeah, the chemical synapses and the ups and the downs and the voltage are pretty simple, but let's just multiply it by 100 trillion and then your brain you know, has a brain fart and you can't think about all that complexity. And so then you go, oh, okay, I guess, I guess that works out. So just be careful that you're not getting um, seduced by complexity in the abstract and that that is your magic sauce, which then makes you believe in this explanation when you've never actually seen the exact pieces come together to build a conscious being. So John Searle has a famous analogy or thought experiment to illustrate this, and it's called the Chinese room argument. And I will mention that this did not age well. So in the Chinese room argument, I'm going to set up the, the components of this, of this thought experiment. You have a room, and John Searle is sitting there at the center of the room, but he's closed off. There's no windows or doors to the outside world. No light can enter the room. And there are native Chinese speakers outside of the room, and they are passing notes into a little slot on the side of the room. And then John Searle is taking these notes and they have Chinese characters on them. 
and he takes those characters and he goes over to a ledger and it's this giant book. Let's say it's 300,000 pages. And on these pages, he looks for the particular character and he goes and he looks through this ledger and it says, if you see this character followed by this character, followed by this character, followed by this character and this character and this character, then generate this character followed by this other character, followed by this other character. So he does, he makes that, he draws it on a piece of paper. Then he passes that note back outside of the room. And then the native Chinese speakers receive this note and they look at it and they go, oh, wow, what a fascinating response. And then they make their response, put it back into the room and the cycle repeats. The native Chinese speakers outside of the room have the experience of having a dialogue with an intelligent person. And so they're having this full on dialogue and a conversation. And yet at the same time, John Searle in the room doesn't know Chinese. John Searle never learns Chinese through this process. He's just looking up characters, passing them into other characters, and he's never learning what any of this stuff means. And so they're not actually talking to a intelligent being of, of any form. And John Searle here is the analogy for the CPU, the central processing unit of the computer. The computer never learns Chinese even if it can give the appearance that a real conversation is happening, it's the equivalent of someone being in this room, just seeing a character, producing a character, see a character, produce a character, following a system of logical rules, and the computer never actually learns any of the meaning involved. So the Chinese room argument is illustrating essentially an argument against strong AI, strong artificial intelligence. The computer can never learn Chinese or it can never learn what it's doing. It's just following a system of if this, then that statements, and there's no understanding or meaning going on in the computer itself. And so you having the ability to go and learn Chinese and to understand what those characters mean is so vastly different than what a computer is doing and the computer does not have that capacity to do that. So are you convinced by this argument? How does that make you feel? Um, in a later episode, we will talk about what this ledger is. Is it a bunch of if then statements because that would be a first order logical system, but we'll go into that uh, more at this later date. All right, so I am interested in quantum physics. So let's talk about what we can learn about physical reality from quantum physics. And what I find really fascinating here is the idea that when you look around you, there's a bunch of physical stuff out there, but the physical stuff out there is emergent from this very microscopic level. And only at the macroscopic level do you have solidity. Do you have these solid states. And we talk about this more in the digital computer section where physicality emerges from measurement and the measurement principle in quantum mechanics gives rise to solidity. So when you have a bunch of atoms all bumping into each other, they're all measuring each other. This generates a physical state. It generates the physicality 
of that object, even though no single atom within that object could really be called physical at all. So this is a very bizarre reality that we live in, where if you then zoom into anything down at the atomic level, you will find not little chunks of, of matter like we once thought it would just be a bunch of Legos that we could just build everything out of. In reality, it's a bunch of these wave function probability distributions. And then when you measure them, they give you a physical state. But when you're not measuring them, they evolve into this superposition, this wave of all these different physical states that it could be, but it's not at any given point or it's many of them at the same point, however you, you wanna look at that. And so when we talk about physical, what do we mean? And so most people mean this macroscopic solid state that emerges. And so most people are content and happy to ignore quantum mechanical effects completely and just say, oh, that quantum mechanics stuff that only happens at this very small atomic level, so we can safely ignore it. And so physicality is mass measurement. And so one of the ideas behind quote unquote quantum consciousness is the idea that there could be ways that biology, which is made out of superposing atoms fundamentally, is harnessing these more subtle aspects of reality. Because really measurement is epiphenomenal. Measurement emerges from a more fundamental reality. And so when we talk about physicality, we should just be really clear that you're talking about macroscopic stuff. Because if you wanna talk about physicality at a microscopic level, suddenly it takes on a very, very different form. And so most people are content to ignore that completely but, and I talked about this in previous episodes, there's evidence coming out that biology utilizes these superpositions and utilizes entanglement and utilizes these extra things that you get at the microscopic level. And while it's very challenging to get them to higher and higher scales, there might be ways in biology that it has pulled it off. There might not. There's arguments in either direction worth discussing. And so I want to give one more example of this is that you take an atom, and this is an experiment I'll, I'll provide a I'll provide a link here, where you have an atom, and atoms want to absorb photons, and photons of certain energy levels will jump the atom up to a higher energy level. They'll absorb the photon and move to a higher energy state. And so there's this weird phenomena where as photons are flying around, and there's an atom in the vicinity of these photons, if the atom is aligned to absorb or it's tuned to absorb the photon, the physical properties of its surface area will expand in order to intercept those photons that are matched to make it jump up to the higher level. So at an atomic level, these ideas of surface area or size, a lot of these, these common concepts in the physical reality that we see around us are flexible at the quantum scale. Surface area is a flexible physical dimension of the atom that can be warped and changed based on context. 
So the context around the atom will alter its physical properties. And then once again, the physicality of the atom is really just a transient measurement state. And the physical reality is truly an illusion at the more microscopic level. All right, and then I wanna end today's discussion talking about the idea of math and Platonism. And so this is a really bizarre idea, but I encourage you to think about this. Most people who are physicists or mathematicians are not the same physical eliminativists or physical materialists as you would see in biology and in neuroscience and in the biological sciences more broadly. A lot of those people want to reduce the brain down to these physical states and interactions similar to what we talked about with behaviorism where you have stimulus response patterns of activity versus in physics people want to reduce everything down to these laws of physics you want to discover the core mathematics behind reality and i would argue that these are somewhat at odds with each other um, or complementary to each other but taking very different approaches Instead of trying to observe all these patterns of biology, you're diving into these mathematical principles in physics. And this is so much more of a Platonist type approach where you're really obsessed with the mathematics, with the framing, the laws of physics at the core. And I would draw a distinction here between the physical matter in the universe and the laws of physics themselves. And I think these two are often conflated with each other, where it's like, yeah, there's a bunch of photons, but I don't care about any given photon. I wanna understand how photons work mathematically and in this sense of the physics, the laws of physics behind the scenes. So people will devote their time to understanding the laws, and these are really concepts. They're platonic forms. Um, they are a construction and they're not concerned with all the details of all the physical matter itself. So I think this is an important point because these neural networks are trying to assemble a bunch of weights and, you know, a, a bunch of weighted connections between things in order to create a predictive model of how something's going to behave. But the laws of physics themselves are this abstract mathematical form, I would put it as more of a platonic world type approach versus trying to understand consciousness as uh, an arbitrary network of a series of connections with different weights. And so I think these two are often conflated together and I would encourage the physicists out there to think about this idea of Platonism and this idea of viewing the world as a system of logical framing or a bunch of laws, um, as the Greeks would call it, the logos of the universe, the, the meaningful drive or the patterns of how things happen. And so briefly to end this, in the three world model that I'm a fan of and open for debate, of course, um, is this idea that there are these laws of physics, these rules at this platonic level, and then there's this plethora of data and information and content in the physical realm, and all of this entropy from all the possible states that are out there, 
and there's so much data in the physical world and yet there's these pristine mathematical conceptual rules for how things happen up at the platonic level um, and so in our next video we'll dive into these concepts or these framings or these theories of mind having a mind and a body typically but oftentimes you'll also see people having sort of a platonic mathematical form dualistically interacting with a physical data oriented form all right so that was a lot of fun um please post a comment below let me know what you think about all of this and i'll be back next week to talk about dualism so talk to you then goodbye Thank <laughs> you.